Hey guys, happy Halloween, and welcome to the Tragedy of Cinema's Twilight Zone Halloween Special Edition episode entitled The Howling Man. This episode is based on the short story by Charles Beaumont. This mysterious episode follows the journey of David Ellington, a lost and confused traveler who stumbles through the dark corridors of an old hermitage on a dark and stormy night. His life is forever changed as he encounters a man held captive there. Hey, we appreciate all your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. The prostrate form of Mr. David Ellington, scholar, seeker of truth, and regrettably finder of truth. A man who will shortly arise from his exhaustion to confront a problem that has tormented mankind since the beginning of time. A man who knocked on a door seeking sanctuary and found instead the outer edges of the Twilight Zone. Hey guys, welcome to the Man episode. I'm your host Jimbo, and yes, this is the Howling Man episode, and I'm joined by my co-host. ADZ, happy Halloween everybody, we're glad to... Get this uh, episode up and running. Right. There hasn't been an episode since we have been doing this epi- this this podcast on the Twilight Zone quite like this one, where Eric and I have butted heads, had deep conversations, fought. Uh, yeah, I had him in an arm bar, uh, <laughs> had him submit, say uncle. But no, uh, this is one of those episodes that can be taken two different ways, where one of us will like it, one of us not so much. The beauty of the podcast. Right. So... My job is to make sure I change Eric's mind. So we'll see what he says by the time this is all over with. So, Eric, let's take away this episode five of season two, The Howling Man. All right. The haunting episode called The Howling Man. The Twilight Zone season number two, episode number five. It was directed by Douglas Hayes, and it was written by Charles Beaumont, of course. Um, There is featured music by Bernard Herrmann in this uh, particular episode and the the episode itself is based on a short story by charles beaumont called the howling man i actually think it had a different working title when it started and it slips my mind right now i should have written that down and it comes back uh, when it comes back to me maybe later in the podcast i'll think of it but the original air date for this particular episode was november the 4th 1960 and as always, our production cost looks like $45,614.05. And when we adjust that for inflation, a 902% increase, and it's probably going up every day uh, as inflation <laughs> is soaring these days. We're looking at a figure of $457,000 and some change. So about tenfold again on this episode as far as inflation goes. Jimbo you got an all-star cast here. All-star cast. Are we ready? Take it away. Uh, the main character of this episode is uh, David Ellington. Um, he was played by H.M. Winant. Um, he's best known for Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, where he played Haskins. Or Hoskins, sorry. Um, then you have um, the great actor, uh, John Carradine. Ham himself. He played uh, Brother Jerome. Uh, he was in the Ten Commandments, where he played Aaron, the brother of Moses, which is kind of interesting because he kind of looked like Moses in this episode. Yeah, definitely. So uh, perfectly cast for that part. Uh, He was also in Grapes of Wrath, um, and he was also in a a movie that we had covered on the uh, podcast before, Stagecoach, where he played Hatfield. 
you had Robin Hughes um, as the Howling Man, a.k.a. Satan, or the Devil. Uh, he was in Dial M for Murder, uh, where he played Police Sergeant O'Brien. Is that a Jimmy Stewart movie? I do believe so. Alfred Hitchcock, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frederick Ledebeer as <laughs> Brother Christophorus, Christophorus, which I kind of liked him in this episode too, but he was in the uh, movie Moby Dick, where he played Queequeg. Or Queequeg. Yeah. Q-U-E-E-Q-U-E-G. Queequeg. I'm glad you got that right. one. <laughs> uh, and then you had Azelle Poole, Poile Poole. Uh, as the housekeeper, uh, she is most famous for the Cisco Kid, where she played Matilda and Rose. So, right. question: Out of all those cast members, who do you think had the most credits? This is an easy one. Well, I was going to say John Carradine easily. Yeah, by a lot. Uh, Three hundred and fifty-five. Right. Um, the next closest person was one hundred and sixty-three, and that was H.M. Winant. So, yeah, these are when we say all-star cast. These. These uh, particular actors and actresses. Let me ask you a question. Since, a lot of since, stuff. Since, since we're talking about H.M. Wynette. Sure. Do you think he was acting was over the top in this episode? I think him and, well, John Carradine, like, that was the joke. Like, that's why I made that joke earlier. His nickname was Ham, and he actually had it on a license plate on his car. Right, but I mean, I mean, uh, just... I think it's just the... The, maybe the story, yes, to answer your question simply, yeah, I think, but... Especially like the beginning narration and had the an ending. In, yeah, someone had an interesting observation uh, for H.M. Wynette. Was he playing the Charlton Heston sort of-esque role in the Ten Commandments in this particular episode? Was he trying to, you know, portray that in alongside John Carradine? I can kind of see that. Do you think he was intimidated by... Standing next to John Curtis? Probably. I mean, who wouldn't? The guy had like a booming but, baritone but, voice. But was, but was all of his credits before this or after this? Uh, Do you that see what I, I don't mean? Know. Or was he just a young newcomer? Don't know. I thought he did a pretty good job. But yeah, I think overall the episode is played up more like a theatrical type of episode. But I mean, you know? especially with him. I mean, it's like he's... Like, especially at the end when he's talking to the, the yeah, housekeeper. You know, and he breaks, ah, yeah, the, he breaks the fourth wall and he's talking right. to the camera. And, yeah. and at the beginning, I, I just thought it was a little it was a little too much. You yeah. know what I mean? Okay. Well, so, you're already revealing Mariana, a little bit. Right. So I'm just going to go ahead and start off with that. <laughs> just to give you a little taste of what I'm going for here All in this right. episode. Let me give you the plot. All right. <laughs> David Ellington recounts a story, one that began just after the end of World War One. He was hiking in Europe when he sought refuge in an abbey during a violent rainstorm. The residence is located, excuse me, the residence is isolated and its head, Brother Jerome, tells him he cannot stay. Ellington is ill, however, and during his short stay meets someone who is being kept prisoner and howls constantly throughout the night. Oh. <laughs> right on cue. Ellington believes that this howling man is being kept there for no good reason, but Brother Jerome tells him of the man's true nature. The decision Ellington makes will haunt him for the rest of his life. All right, let's go oh, ahead I have and jump a, into the episode. I need, to, I need to write this down real quick okay. before I forget. So go ahead and start talking about the episode. So we open, traditional opening. Oh, by the way, of tech specs and so forth, this is all the same. This is a 35mm episode. This is not a videotaped episode. And all the specs are the same. I won't bore you with all that technical details again. So we open with a monologue. So of sorts, where David Ellington is telling us the origin story, and he's standing by a window and it's thunderstorming, lightning outside, and raining violently. And uh, he he he, in essence, says, "You're not going to believe the story if I told you 
blah, blah, blah. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And he says, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And then the camera pans <laughs> out the window into the storm. And then we come descend down onto the ground uh, in the wilderness, remote area, an isolated area. And then uh, David Ellington is standing at the door where he's banging on the door. And it's pouring rain. He's ill. In the original short story, I think David Ellington had a pneumonia, if, if I'm correct. Um, I looked to try to buy that short story on Amazon. Dude, they won like they won a lot of money for. It's only like a hundred pages, I think. But it's I really if good. There's a short collection story. of all of his short Maybe, stories. Maybe possibly, cheaper. but it was kind of expensive for um, for the Howling Man story itself. Anyway, I digress. So we we move from the door, and the door opens, and we meet. Who do we meet? Jimbo? Christophorus, Mister. Yeah, Christophorus, who is a. He looks like a shepherd. Oh, really? He's carrying a shepherd. <laughs> they all look like a crook. shepherd. <laughs> and we're going to get to that, why they're all carrying shepherd stacks. Right. Um, that's in our trivia. So Ellington is not doing well at all, is he? He's right. you don't stumbling, know really he's coughing. And although it was pouring rain outside... Bone dry, baby. He, his bone clothes are bone dry. dry, other than his face, which looks like it might be a combination of sweat and water. I don't know, but... Um, he stumbles to this column inside this monastery or whatever, and that's when he first hears the, ooh, the howling. The howl. So I got a little bit of my trusty Twilight Zone companion book. Everybody, every fan of the Twilight Zone should have this. It's by Mark Scott Zickry. Um, definitely worth the buy. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the howl and how they came up with it, and then also, later on this episode, I got a longer episode I'd like to read. So, here you go. Um, as uh, an aspect of this show which caused some concern was the howling, which in the end sounded more like a dog than a man. The howling aspects of the things were hard to sell, Hayes recalls. Now, when you mention howling in a story, you hear this crazy howling off in the distance all the time. This man in the cell is howling. That's all right in a story. Very hard to translate to the screen. It's hard to believe that the man who is in the cell would make howling noises. I don't think we ever actually saw him howling. We only heard him. Right. Because to see him howling would have been very, very hard to yeah, buy. Yeah, 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 yeah. A visitor to the set at the time was Beaumont's friend, William F. Nolan. I remember how concerned they were about the kind of cries and howlings, how demonic to make them, said Nolan. So they played endless tape recordings of howls to see which howl they liked the best. And they'd all sit around and say, well, that howl is not satanic enough. And that howl is too high. It's almost like a woman. And maybe if we took that howl and this howl, and they so they said that they just had a big howl session. <laughs> so um, one aspect of Beaumont's script that Douglas was sure wouldn't work was the prop that all the brothers and the rich were supposed to carry, which we'll save that for a little bit. That's uh, That talks about the shepherd's staffs and what was supposed to be used instead, uh, which I can reference that here back in a minute if we need to. So that's a little bit of how they came up with the howls. Yeah, they were supposed to. I don't have it here in my notes, but I remember they were originally going to use crosses. Right. I think in the original short story, the cross was used. Well, that's what I'll mention now. Blowback too. from. Um, um, they were supposed to carry a large wooden cross. Uh, I said, Chuck, I'd warn, uh, qu- uh, quote, Chuck, I'd war- worried about them having the crosses because the minute you do that, you make them some sort of Christian sect. And the minute you do that, you're in danger from all kinds of religious groups who resent the fact that you're using a Christian symbol. 
So I said, let's find something else. And I substituted the staff for the cross, which he didn't like that either. So he wasn't really keen on either one of them. Yeah, I mean, if you're a writer, you want it to be as close to the original story, I would imagine, as possible. But I guess they got a little weirded out that they thought they would get some pushback from uh, some Because you don't want to alienate any of your viewers. Right. Right. Um, So uh, let's move along in the episode. So... Yeah, and this is really quick, too, because, like, in the original short story, he doesn't, David Ellington doesn't meet Brother Jerome until almost the very end of the story, but because of time, of course, they only had, like, 22 minutes, they had to speed it up, so he meets Brother Jerome straight away, who's sitting behind a desk, and, yeah, he looks like Moses or Aaron, and uh, he describes how he came to be at the monastery, right? Yeah, he... Let me ask you. He this says, too. "All I want is some food and water." And and uh, Brother Drum's like, "No, we can't help you." Out. Basically, well, like, shuts it down. Who, after World War One, is going to be on a walk? I'm going on a walk around, walkabout <laughs> in Germany. Yeah. Again, the short story kind of gives a little bit of a background that David Ellington was from like Boston, and he was from like a well-to-do sort of family, and he was he was like in college age. And he had gone on some escapades in France and Spain, I think. And he was just kind of like bored with his life, kind of. And he didn't want to go back to work in his family. So we just get lost? So, so, yeah, he ended up on a, yeah, like a walkabout throughout Europe. I think it started in like Romania or something. And then he ended up in Germany, I think. But Um, one thing I did like about the episode, which um, is the... If you look out the windows, um, especially when he's talking to uh, Brother Jerome, you see the stream of water uh, like sliding down the mm-hmm. windows. And I don't know if they had it on a string or something, where because it's usually perfectly um, thing. And then you had the lightning and everything, you know, coming through. I thought that was really well done as part of the special effects. So, so we're pretty far about five minutes into the episode when Rod makes his... He kind of just poofs in there. You yeah, know, like, uh, I think they even debated about whether he should even do his monologue here. That it just, just let the yeah at all just to let the story speak for itself, but he does give a quick you know introduction classically, and he pops into the scene. Um, but Ellington's in bad shape, and they they the monks, if you will, they are like, well, we can't turn him away because he's really in bad physical condition, and he falls down and passes out there on the floor. Which they say he's in physical bad physical condition, but. <laughs> really? I mean, he's walking. You let, you let him walk around the castle or the monastery. Yeah. Um, I still haven't seen him eat anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? so. Yeah, they never fed him, <laughs> but he magically is able to, you know, stand himself up and. And do you want to talk about too about the the camera angles? With right, uh, so I don't know if you have that in trivia or not. But, um, I uh, do, I do. Okay. Um, do so to-, to show that Ellington was still disoriented and dizzy. Um, the camera would turn left and then turn right in a different takes to show that he was not healed all the way yet and put the viewer somewhat of a way he was feeling at the time. So if you watch this episode and you got vertigo, it's probably not the episode yeah. for you because um, every time he's on screen and he's walking down the corridors, you'll see the, the camera tilt right mm-hmm. and then the camera tilt left, and you're kind of like, oh, this guy may not be feeling still well, even though it doesn't say what's wrong with him. I don't know if he's dehydrated. If he has an upper inner ear infection, we both had ear problems. You yeah. know what I mean? You know how that makes you feel sometimes. Yeah. Um, but he stumbles down one of these corridors, and he comes to this man locked in a, a, a door, which is – A cell. Let me ask yeah. you a question. If you had the man uh, supposedly, once we find out who he is, 
Why would you have a window on there? Well, I mean, it's like a traditional... It looks like a traditional, like, jail cell, almost. But... But why would you have a jail cell in a monastery? Exactly. That's another issue. Then why, at the end of the episode, there's... If he's locked in the room mm-hmm. at the end, surely there's windows and stuff in the room. I don't get what you're... What you mean? Just the... For, for, to escape... Oh, okay. So if you if they what you're saying is if they really wanted to keep him held captive, why would they put a window? Why would they put him or any uh, interaction any, or okay. even like that right there where he could yeah. uh, interact with? People. Yeah. Well, the the one cool thing that I think that they really did well was he, that Satan or the devil does not look nefarious at all. I mean, even his eyes, like he has very like gentle like big eyes and he he doesn't look threatening at all and right. i thought that aspect was great and let me ask you another question um if we're bringing um the religious aspect of satan into this mm-hmm. then um basically satan's tempting him saying hey let me out of here if you have a window like that then why didn't he tempt any of the other people that walked by the the monastery people you know what i mean probably Is it because, because they were the monks and, and they there, carried there the was, staff the, yeah and they carried the staff maybe and that they weren't going to be tempted um, you know, because if you watch this, the interesting thing is he's like, look, brother drums lying. Um, you know, they've got me locked in here. I didn't do anything wrong. And there's a big, long shepherd staff. That's mm, all that's holding it that's in place. It's not it. locked. It's just a shepherd staff. It's symbolic yeah. on the, on the door. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think it's really interesting here later on when, uh, Ellington goes back to talk to Jerome and he's like, and he's, he's talking to him. He's like, why don't you just reach down here and grab it? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because he can't. Exactly. Because it's a staff of truth, Right. Right. And Satan is a liar, so it's symbolic. Right. Of- but if that's true, uh, we'll get to it in a minute. Okay. So the, the, how, many staffs are, how many staffs of truths are there, though? You see Jerome carrying a staff. You see all of them carrying a staff. That is the staff of truth, the one on the door. Okay. I don't think I don't there would know. be more than one staff of truth. Okay. I don't know. Um, but anyway, like uh, one other thing I wanted to point out was... Uh, the exchange he, he he the satan character or whatever he gives the what's his actual name uh, robin hughes robin hughes that or the howling man if you will he gives this explanation of the story that brother jerome was jealous because he and his woman or whatever were kissing and um happy along the side of the the road and he took all of his anger and you know, he makes up this really convincing story. That's what makes it great. And that he's locked him up in this uh, in this cell or whatever. And then you, you almost don't know who to believe, really. Honestly, they right. do a really good job with this. Because then the next scene is Ellington going and talk, really confronting Brother Jerome about, well, why is this man in the... In in the cell, and he says that is no man. I tell you, that is no man. He's telling the truth, but he's not telling the whole truth. Well, they caught him talking to the man. That's right, why right. he got escorted back to Jerome. Right. And so, but then they have this conversation, and it seems like they're going around and around. And Ellington, you know, at first he says the man who's howling, and they go, "What man? There's no man." And you know that happens for a little bit, and he's very. Um, uh, what's the word? I'm evasive, right? right? When he's when Ellington's wanting to know what what's wrong with this guy, he you know he told me this whole story and he's trying to confront Brother Jerome, and then it comes out that great line. I can't quote it where he he gives all those names of the devil, Diabolos, and Satan himself, and then he comes to the 
you know, he levels with him finally after this cat and mouse kind of thing. And then he asks Ellington, you believe me, right? And then Ellington like threatens to go to the police. And he's like, wouldn't you go to the police if you heard a story like this? You got a man, you know, I don't know what the laws are here, but I'm pretty sure you can't hold a man against his will kind of kind of situation. But so this actually this scene goes on for a long time. Yeah, this is probably the longest scene in the whole episode, maybe this uh, discussion between Ellington and Brother Jerome. And he really tries to convince Ellington of the fact that he is actually Satan and that he's locked him up and um I think later there's a discourse in, in, let's see he's going to tell the rest of the truth yeah so. in a, in the fact that you know everything was peaceful and he talks about the the village and and all of that but Ellington doesn't seem convinced ultimately I think at the yeah, end. he's a hard sell yeah and then is there any other Oh. Well, he tells him, you know, I've heard that Hal every hour. Yeah, he finally every admits. hour for the last five years. I've heard that every hour, twenty four hours a day, for five years. Yeah, he finally admits after this little cat and mouse thing that yeah, I actually do hear the the howling, and it's cool how they develop that in the short story too. Like it, it goes on longer than even this scene, but uh, yeah, he just refuses to acknowledge Brother Drummond refuses to acknowledge that he hears anything or sees anything and he he him and uh, brother christophorus try to convince ellington that it's all in his mind and because he's so sick and ill and he has fever and everything in the story he he contemplates he's going back and forth within his mind like am i really imagining this is this real and then once he gets well then you know he finally realizes yeah this is actual real howling going on and it's like two doors down from me where i'm resting or whatever but so let me ask you a question so do you think that jerome and the other monks that basically have just come to terms with uh, living with that noise like let's say in your house you have a leaky faucet and you hear the drip at night when you're trying to sleep after a while it doesn't bother you anymore because it just becomes second nature you know you fall asleep anyway well consider the alternative right it's it's either listen to the howl or you let Satan out of his cage or out of his... If he really is Satan. And then he runs wild. Well, they believe and know that he's right. Satan. But Ellington's not convinced at this point yet. And I wasn't either at this point in the show, right? <laughs> um, again, this scene in... Uh, well, I don't know what you call the office or study of uh, Brother Jerome is really the bulk of the episode. So this dialogue is... We won't belabor it, but it it is long and, and it's sort of cyclical, but it's really the meat of the episode. So ultimately, though, Ellington ends up in Brother Christophorus's um, quarters Watch. or whatever, yeah, and under his care, and they lock him in in that room. And then Ellington, wait a minute, is there something that happens in between though? Does he go back to the cell again? No, I think he's. Yeah, uh, I think he does. He yeah. goes back, and then he. He talks Seems uh, like looky to the howling to man again, and he's like, and that's where he says, Jimbo, what you said earlier, well, why don't you just remove right. the uh, shepherds? Uh, and he says, ah, I don't have any time to talk about this. You've, you've, and, and then even Ellington even asks, well, well, I'm about to go to the police, and the howling man doesn't want anything he's to like, do with the police either. He's like, the death of me. Yeah, I'll, I'll be dead me. before they get here or whatever. 
So after he has this another brief encounter, Brother Christopher touches him on his shoulder, and then they retire to his quarters, and he's like, why are you locking the door? And he says, to protect you. And then he has this key ring. Which, that doesn't make any sense to me either. With a leather strap that goes around his neck. That doesn't make any sense to me either. Why would you lock the door to protect you? You have the staff of truth on the door. <laughs> All these shepherds have the staffs of truth. Why would you have to lock the door? You wouldn't. Well, maybe some of the story is lost in translation as it went from book form to teleplay, you know? That's my only, that's my yeah, best guess. But, do, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? No, I get it. But they had to cut out a and how, ton how of stuff. How deep of a sleep did you have to be to have somebody come around your neck, you know what I mean? Right. Lift that off of you. And then open a, an old creaky door, I'm sure. And the old click click. <laughs> yeah, and the story, they, they talk about that too. As he opens the door, he matches the creaky, creaking of the door with the howling. Oh, so, okay. like, like so he opens it a little bit more when he hears the howling uh, so you know and I thought maybe he would lock Christopherson back in there you know like lock it on the outside so Christopherson no. couldn't come out and get him you know what I mean and here you have him you know turning the camera angles again so you can tell he's still not feeling well yeah so here comes the best part so Ellington comes and he removes the, the staff, staff of tra- staff of truth staff of trap is what <laughs> staff of trap it's a trap yeah and then he emerges, the Howling Man emerges. Yeah, that didn't make sense to me either. And he, he put the... What was that? The finger <laughs> poke of doom? The, the, the Darth Vader, what do you call Darth Vader? Uh, the force choke? Yeah. yeah, but it's like it's, it's like his shoulder went out of place or something. Yeah, you know what I and mean? then he falls to the ground. And this is probably the coolest part in the whole episode. So his cold demeanor, though, that is cool about when the Howling Man emerges. He kind of... His whole demeanor changes from a scared, like, you know, and, I don't know. Like, and he's changing clothes as he goes and, down and the he, corridor. And he, his, his demeanor completely changes and he strokes his beard. And then this is where we get to the the technical details of the episode where, Jimbo, I think you have it written down. Right. Let me write this down. Um, basically, he's walking down this corridor and he's changed the, the makeup scene throughout the thing. He actually, from looking from a normal man to what people perceive as the devil devil with the horns and all that. So let me read you this short little excerpt of how they came to do that. Yeah, then I might have a reply to that as well, to like the So, let's see here. Uh, For his Twilight Zone script, Beaumont kept the basic story, except for the fact that the young man becomes obsessed with the idea of recapturing the escapee and sending back to the Abbey, which we'll get to. However, he decided to leave no ambiguity as to uh, the identity of the Howling Man. In the scene where the devil escapes, uh, Beaumont wrote in one visual element a cloven hoof that left no doubt as things went. However, this was never used. So basically, he just wanted to see the cloven hoof Mm -hmm. as he jumps over a wall, Mm -hmm. and that's all you really saw. So you didn't really know it was him. But, director Douglas Hayes explains, in my literal kind of visual sense, I wanted to see him turn into the devil. I felt the audience would feel cheated unless they saw that. And Beaumont didn't want them to see it. He just wanted the expression on Wynant's face as he chased after him and reached up the, as a man went over a wall. All he wanted was to see the hand touching a cloven hoof just as it went over the wall. When I did the literal translation of showing him visually turn into the devil, Beaumont didn't like that. He liked better the way he had written it, and that was what he wanted to see. But I have a funny feeling as a director. I started as an artist and I like to see things. If I promise the audience something, if I say there are 3,000 Indians on the other side of the hill, I don't want to see one feather poke up behind a rock. I want to see 3,000 Indians. Mm -hmm. Hayes' literal transformation of Robin Hughes into the devil involved two different approaches. 
The first occurs as a prisoner steps from the cell. The lighting, the lighting shifts, and is suddenly his face is suddenly but dramatically changed. Before, his face had looked benevolent. Now it looks evil. What has occurred, all in one shot, with no cuts, is complete makeup change. This was done with George Clemens' red-green filter trick, which he had used before on the episode Long Live Walter Jameson, which we covered in Season Mm 1. The second approach was much more complicated, Hayes explains. I had seen many transitions, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or the Wolfman or something, in which they would suddenly become immobile and the makeup would change and then they would start moving. I don't want to do that, I said. I want to see him moving all the time. The makeup is changing. So, what we did is that we had a long corridor, and from the time that he started the makeup change, I had him walk very fast down the corridor. At the end of the corridor, he turns and is now transformed completely into the devil, and he dissolves into a puff of smoke. I had the camera on a dolly, and we timed it so that we ran at exactly the same speed every single time. Now, between us and him were a series of pillars... He would make the entire walk at full speed, and we would go with him at full speed all the way in every makeup. But when it was cut together, we cut from makeup to makeup, and we were passing uh, as we were passing the pillar, so that in the blur of the foreground pillar, which was only a matter of the most split of a seconds, he would be in the next makeup, and the illusion was that he never stopped moving, and the cameras never stopped moving. It was just zoom. He flashed down the corridor, and he was uh, moving very fast. The makeup was changing. Sad to say, the final makeup achieved it uh, achieved is too literal. With its absurdly long noise, pointy ears, and horns, <laughs> the devil looks more foolish than frightening. The only makeup that strikes a true satanic mood is the first and most subtle change. And I'll just leave that at, at, at what it is. So basically, they had him uh, go down that corridor first as normal, then the, the first makeup all the way down, and the second, and then all the way till they got to the end. So they had mm-hmm. that whole mm-hmm. corridor to play with. And so, so the Walter Jameson connection, I think in that episode, like he turned to dust, dust right? right. Yeah. Just one footnote as it pertains to that uh, in relation to the short story. Satan's transformation before Ellington's eyes did not appear did not happen in the source story in that version ellington only learns the truth years later when he sees uh newspaper photographs of the howling man who has become a nazi commander invading poland so that's a cool little distinction on how they uh you know for tv i get it like you got to make it you promised your audience something you got to deliver but it does look pretty cheesy in the in the final you know, adaptation or whatever he is right before he goes into... And then he just passes out. Yeah, you know? he rele- <laughs> he's released just, from his, yeah. uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, the the force, spell. the force spell. And then Brother Jerome sort of comes and tells Ellington, like, you don't know what you did, buddy. You're yeah. going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. He's like, I'm sorry for you, my son. Yeah. You, you know, you, you remember this night for your whole life that you let evil out into the world. He's like, I, I wish I would have believed you. <laughs> oh, man. And then we... Now we get... Years later, again, this is a deviation from the story. Um, Ellington has recaptured Satan, and he gives a description, and he's telling the maid, right? Right. Like, you don't understand... So basically, he's telling this story at the beginning is what he's telling yeah, this maid. So he's told assume, this whole story yeah. to this maid. Which, by the way, just a little slide, slide trivia. This was the first aired episode of the second season that was not written by Rod Serling. So up until this point in season two, he'd written all those stories except for this one. Hey, Rod, maybe you should have. Oh, right? man. <laughs> but here's, there is one problem I have. If, if he is 
toiled over all of these years, and he's trapped him, and he's hunted Satan, and he's finally got him trapped behind a door, which doesn't have a locking mechanism, by the way, if you really look closely in the right, little right, trivia, right. the goofs. Right. And I'm assuming this is like an apartment somewhere. Right. And he has him behind the door. Right. Why would you leave? Why would you leave well, for a he, minute? Well, because he's he's getting ready to go do to, to get gather everything so he can. Get, I know. And how is he going to transfer him back to the abbey? I don't know. But he's got this little staff. I mean, yeah, it looks like a candy cane. Okay, yeah. on this door, <laughs> they had a gigantic one at the beginning of things. But, 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 but here's my here's my point to this. And you know, the maid is going to get curious and look like. Well, not only that, but. Um, if this is, let's say, an apartment, there is got. I don't think it's a closet. If this is a bedroom or something, it looks like there's is, a, is a chair there a, or something. Yeah, but I'm saying, is there a window? There has to be a window or something in there, right? I don't know. It looks like F- a fire safety hazards, right? You know what I'm saying? There has to be. <laughs> I guess. So, uh, here, let me read one other piece of trivia that's <laughs> not related to the actual ep- in the episode. It says a photograph of Buck Houghton, and maybe we can put this up on our Facebook uh, post. The photograph. Uh, of Buck Houghton standing next to the actor Robin Hughes in the guise of the horn and Cape Satan graced the cover of Progress Report Number 3, printed by the 20th World Science Fiction Convention, which was to be held at the Pick Congress Hotel from August 31st to September 3rd, 1962. So there's a photograph that was taken of the two of them. I'm assuming it was on set or shortly thereafter. That was on a magazine. Right, so maybe so, we can throw that up on the Facebook post so that you guys can see. <laughs> right, let me cup a cup other notes before I dive into some stuff. Observations: <laughs> uh, John Carradine, who played Brother Drum, later played Professor Alex Stottle in The Twilight Zone, uh, Still Life, The Little People of Killiney Woods, and The Misfortune Cookie in 1986. Um, this episode takes place in 1924 and in 1960. Um, at the end of the housekeeper begins to pull open the closet door. It says a closet. Okay. Uh, before she turns the doorknob, and the door clearly has no doorknob latch mechanism, yeah, which we've already talked about. So, Eric, here's 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 some of my uh, my boy, questions and go. comments. Are you ready? Yep. Um, why the short staff on the on the door of the closet at the end, and not a full staff? Where did he get this baby staff when the monasteries all had? He huge, was in a pinch. Huge staff. He had. He was in a pinch. Maybe he carved it out of the original staff. He made a smaller version. Oh, oh really? But if you if if you knew the uh, the the shepherds, I call them shepherds. The the monks had huge staffs. What makes you think a little staff? Doesn't matter. As and, long as it's the staff of truth. And are we really going to think that this man was smart enough to trap Satan after he let him go the first time? Everything you've seen about him was like, oh, okay. You know, what I mean, I, I just can't buy him as a as a believable character. Uh, actually, having the brains to capture Satan. I think it's a euphemism. That's what's in my okay, it's, a well, com- it's a commentary let on me ask the you this Holocaust question, and Hitler. We just witnessed um, Ellington release him, and Brother Drum leans down like, my son, I'm sorry. You will never forget this day the rest yeah. of your life. It's basically your problem now. Mm-hmm. When the maid releases him, is it now become her problem and not Ooh, Ellington's problem anymore? Question. Because, remember, he, does Ellington mm-hmm. come back and say, Look, you don't understand what you've done. Basically, you're, it's up to you now to stop him because you have released him on the world now, and it's now your problem, not mine. Mm, interesting. I would say probably, yeah. She was the last one. Do you think Ellington left knowingly she would open the door like he did? So that way it's not his problem anymore. Again, those That's are why all he mysteries left. of the Twilight Zone. Right. <laughs> 
And um, oh, like he he wanted he her to be wanted the her to do guy? it, so he didn't have to do it anymore. Oh, okay. It's her problem to get back to the monastery now, or would she have to take it back to Ellington, and Ellington had to take it back to the monastery people? I don't know. It's a good question. Good question. And my last thought was. Satan's final form looked worse than the 80s plastic Halloween costumes we used to have as kids <laughs> with the rubber band on the back. You remember those? The, yeah, the, the, the rubber band that always broke. Cut your circulation yeah, off. Yeah. You know, by the, by the end of the first ding dong trick or treat, it was like, hey, it's me and my mask. Look, I'm Superman. Here's yeah. my S on my chest. You know, I don't that's have a mask the, anymore. That's the old Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fogs up your face. Yeah. Your face is all hot. And you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know can't what I mean? breathe in the. the, the uh, Strap just gets tighter and tighter as you go through the, right. through the night. So that was just some of my uh, observations of, of watching the end of this episode. So, Eric, um, let, let me hear, hear your side of the story. <laughs> Don't sound so enthused. <laughs> no, I just I think it, I just asked the question, Is this a, I think the answer is yes, but is this a commentary on the Holocaust? Was the devil a euphemism for Hitler and Nazism released onto the world? Because, because World War II was shortly... Right after World War One, right, it was dubbed the War to End All Wars, and so uh, you have the formation of was it the United Nations, but it was called something else initially, and there was relative peace right throughout the world, and it sort of gave way for the rise of Hitler. Like all of the conditions of the world at that time, I don't have time to go into a full I don't History know lesson. yeah a full historical <laughs> recounting of all that, but. There was a lot of criticism that would be to the fact that, yeah, it gave rise to Hitler and his control and and uh, the condition of Germany at the time of World War II and how the people all sort of rallied around the Third Reich and they were easily manipulated and they were lied to uh, along with you know the rest of the world that he was sort of this docile in the beginning sort of leader who wanted – you know, on and on we could go, but obviously it didn't turn out, and he is the picture, a euphemism of the devil, and he tried to take over the world as it was uh, back then until World War II. So I think that's a fairly good assessment. Have you ever noticed that the Twilight Zone does do a lot of stuff centered around yeah. World War One and World War II well, and Hitler yes, in general? Exactly because, and we've seen it in these last couple right, of episodes. Right. Very, uh, it's very even upfront. in some in season one and overtly in. Right. Uh, Man in the Bottle episode. <laughs> Where became Italy. I think uh, it's Hitler. because Rod served, and I think Charles Beaumont was also in the military and served in World War II as well. So, I mean, that obviously is in the forefront of their mind, uh, those experiences. And so they so wrote any, about what they knew. Anytime they can pick on the opposition, they just felt the need that they should and could. I think so. I mean, right, right or wrong or indifferent, I think it made for good storytelling. And they did a great job at it. Uh I'm not as critical of this episode as you are. It's it's one of my favorites of season two so far. I wouldn't. The next episode, which I won't give away, is probably tops for me. And it might be the number one episode of the entire series for me. And it's probably the it's, most memorable one of my childhood. It's great. Um, but we'll get there for that one. But I would give this one a strong eight. And you're you're in the five range. No, I mean it's not scary it's, necessarily. I know it's a Halloween episode, but it is. It it's kind of scary. A story. Yeah, um, it's better than it's. I could probably tie it with the one we just did last episode um, because I think the story of the last episode was more captivating to me uh, because of the real world situation that okay. we are facing. Okay. Um, I think I think why in its 
over the top acting in this. Uh, it it almost made it not believable. You know what I mean? Like like the guy that was uh, yelling at the TV repairman last episode and and the kids. And he's like, get off my lawns, kids, basically, or I'm going to have this cop arrest. You know, you could feel for that guy because you're a cranky old man now. I know. I've seen you in action. <laughs> oh, but I'm just saying he was more of a believable character than this guy. You know, even telling, telling the story at the beginning, he's like, oh, you're not going to believe this. Oh, you know it. what okay. I mean? Um, I just think the guy's acting was better in the last episode. Okay. So uh, you yeah, felt like it was probably, more. This is probably was, a 7.5, I'd say. Seven, it was more seven, put five. on. It, right. It was, it was more over the top, like. I, I couldn't believe this guy. You know what I mean? That's why I brought up the Charlton right, right. aspect of like he was trying to channel his. Inner was he trying Charlton to out act Carradine? I could possibly um, see that. So that kind of took away. But then again, some of the questions that I brought up, like like the little bitty staff on the door. You know, I was like, really? I mean, the brother drum kind of given you a big staff to take on your journeys to go find the guy. Okay. Um, and then the whole thing at the end with the housekeeper, I, I think that's a really, I like the ending. I think, uh, I'd like to know if I would have loved to seen Ellington come back in the door and be like, what have you done? You know, like brother drum. Well, it's your problem now. Basically, you know, you're, you're, you're going to remember this the rest of your life, yeah. uh, for unleashing basically world war three on everybody. Now, since mm-hmm. world war two is already, you know, I think they even said that, um, I think that's one of the reasons that, um, he was so, uh, detrimental to capturing him again is because World War One was over and World War Two was getting ready to begin. Mm-hmm. From what I could tell from the story, yeah. Um, so this would signify that World War Three was getting ready to start um, or something worse. Right. Um, so yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 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 one of the better ones of the first five we've done. <laughs> I mean, but we've yeah. only done five episodes right. of the season. But we will find out where it lands when we do our wrap up episode for season two here in a few short months. And see if Eric still feels strongly about it after watching the rest of season <laughs> two change. and where it falls. Right. So, well, uh, you got anything else before we close this Halloween special out? No, just the, did you want to touch on the depiction of Satan himself? I think a lot of times we get that right from um, Dante's Inferno and we get those picturesque things right. as, as um, it applies to. A lot of, a lot of people associate the devil satan uh, as a horned uh, person with uh, the goatee and the long tail and the cloven hooves and the yeah. human arms um but if you ever do a study on satan um he's basically an angel yeah um, an angel of light right right so it may be one of the most beautiful ones yeah ever. and the truth about the episode is though that he is the, the father of lies master deceiver yeah and so they they were accurate on that but you know yeah like I was just curious because it really didn't say in the notes or in the trivia where you know how did they come up with that costume? I think it's just like traditional devil costume with the horns and the pitchfork and the and the cloven hooves right. and stuff, and that all comes out of like Dante's Inferno, which was like what fifteen hundreds those paintings right. and stuff. So right, so yeah, very interesting take on on how they yeah. did it. So. and it was almost comical by the end like how right. how he described charles beaumont <laughs> you know, described or buck Houghton, even, whichever it was. even even if you remember in the movie problem child you know with the yeah. kid you know he has the devil horns on yeah. and all that too so and that's kind of what i felt towards the end of this movie so um well there you have it the howling man season two episode five uh the next time we meet will be episode six what's the title of episode six the eye of the beholder can't wait so with that being said i think this episode's coming to a close and that's a wrap and cut Ancient folk saying, you can catch the devil 
but you can't hold them long. Ask Brother Jerome. Ask David Ellington. They know, and they'll go on knowing to the end of their days and beyond in the twilight zone.